Well, good afternoon. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, it's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming. It's a, I'll say it's a pleasure for me uh, to work alongside my good friend Daryl Tippins this afternoon. And um, you'll get to, I think, overhear some of the fruit of pretty long periods of conversation we've had for quite some time uh, in this area. And this is not some uh, fly-by-night topic we happen to pick. Uh, it's one that we've been deeply uh, in, interested in, engaged in for, well, several years. Um, and let me say that uh, this, uh, this is going to be a workshop format. Uh, that's what the title is, a workshop. I guess at a workshop, you usually do what? You work. Um, Okay, we're going to try to do that, particularly in the second hour. We're going to divide this into two halves, two hours. Um, the first uh, half will be dealing with um, sort of the, the biblical theology of the Lord's Supper. Um, and the second half, after a, maybe an eight or ten minute break between, will be uh, the workshop part where we're going to lay out some, um, some pieces to work with on the elements of a, a Lord's Supper service or liturgy. And we have uh, some handouts that give you some sample um, Lord's Supper liturgies that we came up with. And then we're gonna have a worksheet for everyone where either either solo or in groups of two or three, uh, you can work together or alone to sort of get creative here and maybe incorporate some new dimensions to the observance of the Lord's Supper, taking, keeping in mind, of course, uh, your own tradition, uh, that is, where you come from. We all come from strong traditions of Lord's Supper observance. Most of us, I suspect, in this room are in what I would broadly call the free church tradition or the low church tradition. Uh, we're not part of those groups, most of us, I, I take it, uh, uh, who would be in the liturgical traditions, the high church traditions. Uh, or to put it differently, uh, we're probably in the more liturgically lean traditions than the liturgically thick traditions. Uh, and, and these traditions uh, form us in very strong and deep ways. And so we're not suggesting here this afternoon that you make some radical turn in how you do the Lord's Supper. But we are saying maybe there are some dimensions, biblical and historical dimensions to this that could enrich what you already do. Or maybe give it a shot anyway. Maybe think, think it through. Maybe make, do, do a little experiment here this afternoon and see what you come up with. We're going to have some resources for you uh, to do that. And, uh, and during the work time we have in the second hour, you, I mean, you can do whatever you want. You can just ha have conversations with people about this. You can actually do it, have a working group and come up with a, a, a liturgy, a proposed liturgy, um, and maybe share it with us at some point. Um, anyway, uh, that's the plan. We'll be t doing a lot of the talking the first uh, hour, uh, and um, you'll be engaged, we hope, a lot in the second hour and being do doing some of the talking with us. So that's sort of the plan, and um, let me um, 
introduce Daryl Tippins to you and let him say a word here about how we're going to proceed here. He, uh, well, thank you, uh, Leonard. I uh, am very happy that we're all here together. I think there's so much that we can do to enrich and deepen our experience uh, of the table. Um, my, my view is that whatever you do in your church around the Lord's State Supper, we're, we have zero interest in destabilizing or throwing out or negatively critiquing what you're doing. But we are going to be boldly uh, uh, saying there may be more to be done at the table with your fellow worshipers than you have considered. Uh, if we hope that you at least are open to that possibility. If you're, if you're so settled with how you do it that there's nothing more to be said, then you probably want to go into another workshop. Uh, but if you're open to the possibility that as good as it is, there may be more uh, to the understanding of the Lord's Supper and the practice of the Lord's Supper, then maybe what we're going to do this afternoon will be uh, interesting and maybe in a few cases uh, exciting. Uh, it's worth remembering that Christians have been observing the Lord's Supper for 2,000 years, virtually. And if you add in the Jewish experience of ritual table meals, including Passover, then in fact, believers in God have been practicing these sorts of meals for well over 3,000 years. And it seems to me humility would dictate that we listen and learn from those who've been practicing the Lord's Supper, perhaps in different ways than we have been practicing it. <coughs> so um, we're glad you're here. Welcome, and we invite you to enter into this um, experimental <coughs> workshop uh, with us uh, is in whatever way you can or wish to. Um, and my task now for just a few minutes is to kind of locate us a little bit, uh, presuming that many of us, perhaps uh, I'm sure the majority of us, maybe almost all of us in this room uh, were formed by and maybe still being formed by Churches of Christ, that particular heritage. Um, <clears throat> And let me say, start out with a kind of a, a, a fairly bold claim that uh, in my experience and observation over many, many years, it seems to me that many congregations today, and not just churches of Christ, many um, evangelical type congregations are almost exclusively what I would say memorialist in their uh, the theology of their, their practice. That is, um, they believe that this is a memorial meal. And, the, and, the, and the, the main focus and challenge is to remember. And of course, that's a biblical charge. No question about that. This do in remembrance of me. Um, but I want to ask maybe why, for a moment, why that might be the almost exclusive focus, theologically or biblically because there are many other dimensions, it seems to me, of this observance we find there. And there is, uh, for many uh, modern Christians in the evangelical stream, um, the free church stream, there is the influence of the 16th century reformer named Ulrich Zwingli. And uh, Zwingli, in sharp controversy with Martin Luther and John Calvin, um, denied that the Lord's Supper is in any way a means of grace 
And he affirmed that, that worshipers are the central actors in this supper. Not God, worshipers. It's a human-focused event. That's one factor, and you'll find that kind of um, what's sometimes called Zwinglian view of the Lord's Supper common in today's evangelical uh, traditions. Um, in addition to that, though, there's more, it seems to me, in our modern world. There's a, there's, we're living in the, in the midst of what some would call a desacralized world. Uh, you could call it maybe a deistic world, where God created stuff but doesn't do anything anymore. Um, and a, a worldview that sees divine um, intervention or engagement is questionable at best. And it has led, helped feed into what we can call a narrow memorialism when it comes to the Lord's Supper. So let me, let me say a word quickly, very quickly, uh, about Churches of Christ specifically here, uh, going back to Alexander Campbell for a moment. Campbell was formed strongly by his Scottish and Irish Presbyterian background, and there's a long, interesting history there. Um, if you read the book by Lee Eric, saw the book by Lee Eric Smith called Holy Fairs, He's tracing the origins of what we call camp meetings in the Presbyterian Communion Festival, which began in the 17th century and was transported to America. And it's what happened at Cane Ridge in August of 1801, a Presbyterian Communion Festival. Um, and Campbell himself complained early in his American career, that the Lord's Supper had become, I'm using some of his wording here, had become religious penance accompanied by morose piety expressed in sad countenances on sundry days of humiliation and fasting. Um, he said these kind of habits um, in observing the Lord's Supper tend to summon people to be mourners in the house of sorrow, which is, he said, as sad as a funeral parade. Maybe a little overstated there from my own experience in our church, but uh, he, so uh, for, for Campbell, table was not only a real gathering around a table, but it was to be saturated with what he would call festive joy. He said, I quote, Campbell, uh, Christ did not assemble them to weep and wail and starve with him. No, he commands them to rejoice always and bids them eat and drink abundantly with him at his table. But um, um, what happened, to make a, a much longer story with lots of nuance uh, short and maybe oversimple, is to say that um, that sense of joy marking the observance of Christ's uh, death and resurrection um, faded significantly. And I, I think we could say that for churches of Christ in the 20th century, 
Um, the tone was set, the theology was set by a work from September of 1915. Most of you have probably never heard of this. It was originally a collection of articles published in the Gospel Advocate that year that was later, a year or two later, released as a, as a book uh, in see, 1917. Um, and it was entitled, um, <clears throat> what, was it, what was it entitled? Around the Lord's Table. Anybody ever seen that book or read it? It was reprinted numerous times up through 1972 uh, in the 20th century. And uh, if, if you look at it closely, I've, and were raised in Churches of Christ, you would probably see that what you learned to do in your church was shaped by this. Um, <clears throat> this article, the, the articles primarily characterized the supper as commemorative and declarative. By commemorative, of course, it meant as a memorial to, to remember Christ's death. And secondly, declarative, it was a proclamation of his death, like a, um, a visual sermon. Um, and it was primarily envisioned as a cognitive process where we contemplate the death of Christ, and when we do this together, eat it and drink it together, we proclaim the Lord's death and, until he comes. Um, sometimes a, the idea of spiritual nourishment in the supper arises, but it has a very um, somewhat slight and, and, and minimal role. The function of the table in this view and practice is fundamentally to bring the cross into full view and through the mind's eye through memory, experience something of the agony and the suffering and the sorrow of Jesus' death. M.C. Curfees um, was write, writing in this, in this volume, and he noted that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is, his phrase, strictly monumental and commemorative. By monumental there, he means um, um, as a monument, a, a, a memorial. Um, and he, using a little bit flowery language here, he suggested that the participant on what he says, wings of memory, is led to the somber shades and gloom of Gethsemane and by the cruel cross of Calvary where amid earthquake shocks and supernatural darkness the story of ineffable love is told in agony and suffering. So. In other words, the communicants, uh, they, they linger at the cross, they imagine its scene, they remember it, and by that means, by their memory, they commune uh, with the Lord. Let me mention here, in closing this part, there's another more minor theme, you might say, or stream in the 20th century churches of Christ um, that really focused on what I would call a real communion with Christ at the table, a kind of, you might say, mystical communion, not just a symbolic communion, but a real communion. Uh, this more minor stream stood in the tradition of Robert Richardson's classic book of the mid-19th century called Communings in the Sanctuary, where he speaks in 
rich and um, vivid terms of a kind of entering into the life of life with Christ and sharing his life and receiving his life in this supper. Um, it, it spoke of real communion with Christ, of meeting Christ at the table, meeting Christ at the table. Uh, in the 20th century, Churches of Christ, one can see it, for example, in someone like um, E.A. Elam. Have you heard of Elam? Uh, he was a significant uh, influence in the early to mid 20th century. Uh, in 1915, Elam wrote these words. Uh, this was in uh, the Gospel Advocate. He said, Jesus meets his disciples here in their assemblies to partake of the Lord's Supper. Every time the supper is observed, listen, every time the supper is observed, Jesus is present. This is a spiritual supper, is spiritual food, and upon it Christians feed for spiritual growth or development. This theme of the presence of Christ at the table, of meeting with him and being fed by him, uh, you find uh, in a more minor stream of our heritage. So just a little, that's just a little backdrop for what we're going to do. And um, let me say again, the central purpose of this workshop is to provide resources for us for making our weekly practice of the Lord's Supper maybe, shall we say, theologically richer, biblically richer. And in this first hour, we will be focusing on widening our theological range of understanding of the Supper and in the second hour, we will focus on our liturgical practice or our, rit our ritual of doing this, asking all who wish here to experiment in constructing a liturgy that you might be bold enough sometime to actually use in observing the Lord's Supper. So, Daryl's going to take this. Oh, no, I've got one point, right? Go for it. Okay. We're, we're going to look at uh, about six or seven theological themes uh, from Scripture uh, as a kind of um, laying the table here for us to, so to speak, to use a metaphor, uh, to um, uh, consider. And I want to begin, uh, and Daryl will pick up here in just a moment, but I want to begin with the word Eucharist first. Has anybody here ever heard that word in, in a, used in your church for this service? Okay, several of you. Uh, that's fairly unusual, I think, at least uh, maybe it's a more recent thing. In my growing up all the years, I never heard the word except in reference to when I was talking to a Catholic friend you know, who had gone to the Eucharist uh, with his family. Um, but I, I want to kind of rehab that word here just for a minute. Because, as you well know, I expect, it means simply thanksgiving. And is a very biblical concept and biblical word. Um, now, we, we use the word communion, and that comes from uh, the King James Version of 1 Corinthians 10.16. Uh, and we, we use the term Lord's Supper. And this is a phrase used in 1 Corinthians 11.20 in most versions of the New Testament. So when you come together, it, it, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, says Paul. Uh, so those, those two terms are very biblical terms, and we've always prized using biblical terms, right? Um, the word Eucharist comes from a Greek word used several times in the New Testament. 
The verb form is used in the gospel accounts where Jesus instituted the supper, Matthew 26, Mark 14, uh, Luke 22, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. For example, Matthew 26, 27 says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, there's the word um, uh, Eucharist, you'd say, having given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. And the verb form of this simply means to give thanks. Uh, the noun means simply thanksgiving. And it is used in scripture for Jesus giving thanks to God for the cup or, and the bread. And the term Eucharist very early on in Christian history uh, came to refer to the Christian ceremony of thanksgiving. That is, thanksgiving for the gift of salvation through the faithful life and conquering death of Jesus. Um, and this term Eucharist uh, highlights a most basic dimension of the Lord's Supper, gratitude and thanksgiving. For example, we see it um, in, the, in, the, in the second century with the Justin Martyr. Um, he gives an account of Christian worship in the second century and he highlights the three key moments of the Lord's Supper. He says, first, there is the bringing in of the bread and the wine as an offering to God. That's followed, number two, by what he calls the great prayer of thanksgiving, that is, the Eucharist, the Eucharistic prayer. And then thirdly, the disciples partake of the bread and the wine together in fellowship. In this simple ceremony, they were stressing that bread and wine are God's gifts to us in creation. He created these elements and that we offer them back to God with thanksgiving for what they are for us, both nourishment physically and um, a sign of God's provision for us through Jesus' body and blood. The early Christians began to call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist because it is a profound thanksgiving for what God has done for us through the life and death of Christ. And it's the kind of thanks, spirit of thanksgiving that we hope would begin to form us and reverberate through all aspects of our lives as we seek to be his disciples. So that's the first point, um, Eucharist or thanksgiving. Yeah. Thank you very much, Larry. Uh, you know, we could say uh, it's not worth a hill you want to die on to defend the word Eucharist, but I would just say this. If you're comfortable using the word baptism because it's a direct transliteration of a Greek word like baptizo, then by same analogy, you should be able to call it Eucharist because that's the word from the Greek New Testament, right? But the bigger question point is the whole idea that it's a Thanksgiving service. Mm -hmm. And I dare say many, many people you worship with don't initially and primarily think of the Lord's Supper as a Thanksgiving ceremony and celebration. And so whether or not you start using this word, which is way pre-Catholic, it's New Testament. The Catholics didn't think this up and the Anglicans didn't think this up. It's just right out of the New Testament. And by the second century, it became the preferred term of Christians long before the rise of Catholicism. But I realize the word has baggage for people, but maybe we can still think of, think of it in terms of thanksgiving. 
Uh, three terms I want to talk about, and then Leonard's gotten this into the first one already. Uh, these are core elements to the Lord's Supper, as I understand it in the New Testament and in the early church. And they're deeply inter integrated. To talk about one uh, is necessarily to talk about the other, but for purposes of conversation, I'm going to try to sort of uh, take these uh, in turn. I grew up in a church where we had a table, a real table. And on that table was inscribed these words, do this in my memory. And we didn't have many uh, fancy furnishings in our church building. It was really, really plain. But I, my eyes had a place to go as I sat through those long sermons. Uh, do this in my memory. And we sang songs like Tilda S. Headley's uh, beautiful hymn, uh, where the feast, when we meet in sweet communion, where the feast divine is spread, hearts are brought in closer union while partaking of the bread. Precious feast, all else surpassing, wondrous love for you and me. And then this last refrain in the brown Christian hymns number two, the last phrase was italicized. It wasn't italicized. I looked in some of the more recent hymnals, and it wasn't. But it was as if to underscore and make the point, while we feast, Christ gently whispers, present tense, by the way. While we feast, now, Christ gently whispers, do this in my memory. I'm grateful that I grew up in a tradition that took the, the memorial dimension to the Lord's Supper very, very seriously. My suggestion, though, today is that we need to camp on this phrase a bit more and consider whether we understand the biblical and New Testament understanding of memory. It could be that we're using the right word, but we have emptied it somewhat of its deep and rich meaning. The Greek word anamnesis, includes the idea of recollection, reminiscence, and remember in our popular sense of the word. But many, many biblical scholars will tell you that anamnesis is a much richer word than just remembering something. It has such deep meaning that it starts fading into the very idea of participation or recollection to the point that you are there. You know the hymn, the, the spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? What is that hymn trying to do? It's trying not just to have you recall a fact, like you might do in a history class or Red Letter Day, but rather, in a sense, imaginatively, spiritually, psychologically, re-entering that moment, that experience of redemption. By the way, this is deeply related to what happens in the Passover service. And I would just say, this is a whole other subject for, for another Bible lecture series, but if we diminish or forget the Jewishness of the Passover, we have erased a great deal of its very power and meaning. And so part of our homework, our project, is to remember that the context of the Lord's Supper is the Passover. And if you want to go, go back and look at a Jewish Seder service, you see the point. Uh, you have someone ask the question, why is this night different from all the others? It's not 
what was that night way back then like it was? But it's this night. And by the way, if you look at a typical um, Easter vigil today, you have the same language. On this night, uh, he was uh, uh, in the tomb and then raised from the dead. And so this whole idea of contemporaneity uh, is very powerful. Uh, In the word anamnesis, there is the idea of somehow or another making it present. Not just remembering the past, but making it present. This limited, minimalist kind of remembrance is simply not adequate. Let me try to give you some examples. All over this campus, there are memorials. Uh, This morning, I was outside Stauffer Chapel, and I was looking at a memorial to those who served in the armed forces. And uh, it's a a beautiful little plaque there. You may have missed it, but as you come out of the chapel, look to your right before you go up the steps. And uh, Mr. Clayson's there asks us to remember those who have served. Don't forget them. Uh, That's a kind of memory, remembering that memorial, remembering who funded this plaza and that building. But you're going to learn that that's a very different kind of memory memory experience than what we're going to get to when we come to presence and koinonia. Here's an easy way to get the difference. All of you have been to a service in memory of someone who passed away. Um, we, call, we even call them memorial services. But you would know instantly something had happened if instead of the preacher saying, today we come together to remember Sister Jones, and then he shifted and say, and now we're going to commune with Sister Jones. We're now going to participate with Sister Jones. We're now going to have fellowship with Sister Jones. I would probably get up and walk out and not think. <laughs> because we know there's a fundamental difference between just recollecting someone and having sweet thoughts about them and engaging them and being with them and them being present with us. And I would say that in the New Testament and in the early church, there's this deep sense that anamnesis is far more than just recollection. Go back and read some of the texts of the Old Testament that relate to the Passover, and you see it beautifully. Uh, If you look, for example, in Deuteronomy 26, uh, there's a passage where it begins, A wandering Aramean was our father. He went down to Egypt. Past tense. Remembrance. One verse later, it shifts, and it says, When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us, we cried to the Lord. Who are, who's saying those words? The believers centuries and generations later. It happened to us. As the Mishnah says, part of the Talmud, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. Every Christian should be able to take that concept and translate it in a meaningful way to going to the Lord's table. Uh, it's worth uh, considering, worth, uh, worth thinking about. Which leads me to this second point that we're well into, the idea of presence. Uh, happily, I grew up with hymns, and you did too, most likely, with hymns that understood and invited this deeper uh, experience of anamnesis. Uh, O sacred head, 
now wounded. Not wounded back then, but oh sacred head, now wounded. Now scornfully surrounded. You're being invited in that hymn text to be there, to re-experience the reality of it. Um, we've already talked about where were you, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? I was talking to some women just a few days ago who uh, reflected on hearing that uh, hymn, singing that hymn in church, and how that they had openly wept as they sang those words because they had such enormous uh, power for them. Or how about uh, the, uh, the great Isaac Watts hymn, Watts hymn, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Present tense, isn't it? Same thing. Uh, Leonard mentioned Alexander Campbell. Um, here's one from uh, Robert Richardson, his friend and biography, biographer, which is from the communities and the uh, sanctuary. Uh, Richardson writes, behold these emblems. You can see the bread and the cup in front of you. Behold these emblems. They speak to the heart. They tell of God's love. They tell of sorrows born for us, of humiliation, pain, and death. Let us consider them. We come to Jesus, and he meets us here. And then he quotes a hymn from the 19th century. The king himself draws near to feast his saints today. The feast today with the king of glory. Uh, you know, the whole New Testament assumes that the risen Christ is with us. If we lose that point, we have lost the heart of the gospel. This deep and absolute conviction that the risen Lord is here with us and among us. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson writes in his wonderful little book, which I recommend, called Living Jesus, uh, he writes these words, Nowhere in the New Testament writings is Jesus simply a figure of the past. Jesus' Jesus's past words and deeds are remembered because and in the light of his present and continuing power. Uh, Jesus is alive and with us. It's interesting if you go to the New Testament, uh, go to the book of Revelation, um, as someone who teaches English, I'm interested in verb tenses, and you go to uh, Revelation 1, you look at Revelation 1, 4, Revelation uh, 1, 8, and you have this strange ordering of tenses. Uh, it reads, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And then it's repeated again. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and is to come. Not past, present, future, but present, past, and future. Because the presence of Christ is everything. Uh, and the, the strange thing was, the early Christians believed that Jesus was still among us. <laughs> he was still meeting us, especially at the table. And that seems to be a, a really big deal. Uh, Leonard uh, has a book that came out, how long ago was it now, 20 years or whatever, called Participating in God's Life. And I want to share a passage from uh, his book. Uh, in the Christian assembly, we affirm this presence 
in a particular and focused way. We claim the scriptural promise that when we come together in the name of Christ, the risen one is present with us. As Jane McClendon carefully words it, and I quote, this holy presence cannot be reduced to our awareness or experience of the presence. The promise is not where two or three are gathered, you will have such and such a worship experience. Uh, Jesus' real presence in worship is not a function of our feelings or experiences or eyesight. We affirm his presence by faith, claiming the scriptural promise. If we do not sense his presence, McClendon continues, there he is yet, hidden perhaps, ignored or forgotten, perhaps officially banished from our worship by someone's theology, yet he's there. So I'm suggesting that we take seriously the idea of presence. What's interesting to me is how in Churches of Christ tradition, we have made so much of baptism and not so much of the Lord's Supper by comparison. My wife's great-grandfather was J.W. Shepherd. He wrote a famous book, The Handbook of Baptism. How many of you have a Church of Christ book on your shelf that says The Handbook on the Lord's Supper? Uh, and yet, we believe that in baptism, something really happens, right? Does anything really happen in the Lord's Supper? We believe in baptism that we meet Christ. We are united with him in baptism, really and truly, not just metaphorically, not just poetically, not just symbolically. We believe there's a real union, right? I think so. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Why would we not accept the presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper, at the table? When he says, where two or three of you are gathered together, there I am in your midst. That's the book chapter and verse, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I would say we need to take the presence of Christ really seriously. He is risen and present with us and among us. And the early church believed that while he's with us in many different ways, he was uniquely and specially present with us at the table. Uh, here's an idea to consider. Go back and look at the famous story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, one of my favorite New Testament stories. Keep in mind that when that story was composed in the book of Luke, the church had already been practicing communion, Lord's Supper, already for decades. The church came into existence around 30, 33 AD, right? And we don't have the Gospel of Luke written until later in the first century. When you go to the, the table with the disciples in the Emmaus story, it's interesting what happens. The, the guest, the hidden guest who's walking along with Cleopas and friend, uh, suddenly takes over the table. You know, if a person comes to my house and eats at my table, I generally preside. But in this story, the guest becomes the host. And then the, the same verbs of institution, two, verse, two chapters earlier at the Lord's table, he took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, he gave the bread, the same verbs appear in that chapter, two chapters later. Is that accidental? Isn't this a communion service? If Jesus comes to your table and he's eating with you, I would call that communion. 
In fact, I would call this the first Sunday night service in the church, although I know technically it's not established until Acts 2, uh, but it's a picture of the church at, in communion. And notice also the formula, word and sacrament. Jesus teaches them first. He prepares them for the table, for learning who he is, and then uh, he meets them, and then their eyes are opened at the breaking of the bread. I'm suggesting that our eyes also ought to be opened at the breaking of the bread, at least spiritually, and to consider the possibility. One of my favorite paintings is the one by Caravaggio. Just type in the, your, your Google search and look at that, the five more and more high tech we would have had on the screen. But it's a picture of that precise moment when Cleopas and his companions' eyes are opened and there's this whoa, and they push back from the table because they realize that this hidden figure is indeed uh, Jesus uh, eating at the table with them. If this seems kind of mystical to you or a little bit too spiritual, uh, let me suggest that uh, this may simply be a sign of how far we have moved away from the New Testament understanding of things. It could be that we have given up and found alien the fundamental world of Scripture that believed the possibility that Jesus could be with us and among us. Uh, a great uh, philosopher of our day is uh, Charles Taylor, who introduces a term, he calls it excarnation, that we are an age of secularists who have moved from incarnation to excarnation. <laughs> incarnation is the belief that God is with us and among us, Excarnation, he's been removed. So we're okay talking about the God who is beyond the azure blue, because that creates distance. We're less comfortable with the idea of imminence, of God's presence with us and among us. Uh, and so we lose the central sign of Christ's communing presence among us in this secular turn. There's a contemporary uh, singer named Andy, Andy Gullihorn, and he has this wonderful little song where he has these lines in it. He says, if you would just send down a sign, he's asking God for help. He's, he's in doubt. If you would just send down a sign for help, I'm praying for a miracle to let me know you're listening, waiting for a lightning bolt to strike, walking through a garden of a thousand burning bushes, looking up to heaven for a sign. <laughs> I walk through the waters and the waves looking for a drop of rain, but you're still not coming through. Maybe it's new eyes that I need, or maybe it takes more faith to see I'm drowning in the truth. Mm. Some interesting questions there. Look at that up on YouTube. You'll enjoy it. Now, I'm going to get into even more dangerous territory. Uh, I've got Go the engine running outside, and I can make a quick break. Uh, I, I got courage today from John Barton. He had this wonderful lesson at 8, eight o'clock on the way Jesus is perceived in non-Christian religions. And he said, I only have time to open the cans of worms. I don't have time to put them all back in. And so I'm going to be opening cans of worms in the spirit of John Barton and let you all figure out what to do with them. I want to ask this question. Who else might be at the table in addition to Jesus? and you and me. You, you all know that passage from Hebrews 12 about how that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Could that be relevant to the communion service? Now in some liturgies, and by the way, a little footnote here or parenthesis, all Christian churches have liturgies. All 
of them, even your own. If we understand liturgy to mean any shared practices that we do in common repeatedly over time. In other words, if you go to a ball game and you stand to sing the national anthem, that's liturgical, at least with a lowercase l. And maybe there's uppercase liturgy, liturgy that applies to the Anglican and Episcopal traditions or Eastern Orthodox, but we're all liturgical, just in different ways. Maybe it's thin and thick, as uh, Leonard suggests, but we're all very much liturgical. But in, in, one, in some liturgical traditions, in fact, all of them that I know of that are in the Eastern Orthodox version or Roman Catholic or Anglican, have language like this. Therefore, we praise you, Almighty Father, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven to forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of his name, your name, holy, holy, holy. What do you think about that language? We're joining our voices with all the voices of the angels and archangels in heaven. Is that appropriate? It's interesting. I grew up in a church where when there was a baptism, often the minister would say, tonight the angels in heaven are rejoicing with us at the repentance of the sinner. Because we get that right out of Luke 15, right, about the... Uh, the the, uh, the forgiven person, or the, 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 one, the faithful one who comes home. But the point is, there is in Scripture and in the Christian tradition these, this sense of moments where our connection of what we're doing and what's going on in heaven are somehow or another related. In the Celtic tradition, you have this whole idea of the thin places, right? This idea that heaven is not far away and remote, and we're down here far away and remote, but there are places where heaven and earth come together. Uh, you think about uh, Old Testament stories of encounter with, with, with God and so forth. Uh, surely this is the gate of heaven, you know, you have in, in Genesis, that kind of thinking. Uh, so I'm asking this question, uh, is it possible that uh, when we worship, something's happening in heaven along with what we're doing? I don't think this is foreign in the New Testament. Uh, go back and read all of Hebrews 12 again sometime, and notice, consider Hebrews 12 as a picture of the church at worship. And what does the Hebrew writer say? We have come to Mount Zion. Not you one day will come, not future. One day when you die, you get to go to heaven. No, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city where the living God resides. We come to the invisible Jerusalem populated by throngs of festive angels and Christian citizens who have come to Jesus, the mediator of the covenant. Sounds to me like a lot's going on here than just you and me at the table, at least potentially. Um, you've all seen that old wonderful movie with Sally Field called Places in the Heart. Go back to YouTube and just type in Places in the Heart final scene or last scene. Better yet, see the movie. But in that scene, there's a church at worship where there's been great suffering, persecution, murder. racism, murder. And the church begins to sing. Well, first of all, the preacher quotes 1 Corinthians 13 about love, your neighbor. And then the people begin to sing, I come to the garden alone. I mean, I get you this. This isn't too much. <laughs> And then the communion trays are passed. And it looks kind of ordinary like any other service until you begin to see it's both the living and the dead. Someone who was murdered is there also 
receiving communion. Is it possible that the people you love who have gone on ahead of you are aware of you at worship? Uh, seems to me to be close to the ideas of Hebrews 12. So I'm suggesting presence is a big deal. <laughs> Minimally, Christ is with us. And then finally, uh, this idea of communion or fellowship, we've already made the point, Paul just asked rhetorically, when you take the bread, when you drink the cup, is this not a communion with the body and blood of Christ? And you have to say, of course it is. And communion, fellowship, and participation imply the presence of others. Last night, I actually ate dinner alone. I didn't happen to see anybody around me when I went through the cafeteria. And I, you know what? I, my heart is full of memories because I spent 14 years here. And so memory, memory lane is big for me. But you know what? Even as I remember people I love, people I used to work with here at, at Pepperdine, I, didn't, I wasn't communing with any of them. I was eating alone, okay? I don't confuse my meal with communion unless there's someone there. And I would just say, you're not having communion if Jesus is not present. <laughs> you may be doing something good, and you may be doing a great memory exercise. I'm all for memorial exercises, but I think it's better to have Jesus. <laughs> I was talking to a friend at lunch about this, and he said... If Jesus is not present at the supper, I want my money back. <laughs> and that's sort of the way I feel about it. I want my money back if he's not present. Uh, there are great hymns about uh, being present with Christ at the table, and I hope that you will uh, check out some of those. Uh, on the handouts that we're going to give you in part two, I'm going to give you a lot of wonderful suge suggestions. Um, there's one hymn I've come to, uh, to love by Brian Wren, who's a contemporary writer in England, a not contemporary Christian writer that you hear on the radio, but a wonderful hymn writer. And he has this one wonderful hymn that begins, Christ is alive, let Christians sing. Christ is alive, his spirit burns through this and every future age. Let all creation, uh, till all creation lives and learns his joy, his justice, his love and praise. And now my perhaps most off-the-wall question. We, I'm arguing Christ is present at the table. How about the Holy Spirit? In the New Testament, the presence of Christ in our era is the Holy Spirit. In other words, that's the way Christ manifests himself in our day and time is through the Spirit. Just go back and read 2 Corinthians 3, 17 18. Three times in the same verse, Paul says the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord Jesus is the Holy Spirit among us now. So it's inconceivable for me to imagine Christ being present and not his Spirit. And here's the really interesting thing. When you start looking at early Christian worship services that have survived, liturgies, and we're talking about early centuries, and we're not talking about Roman Catholic Church here either. Go back to like the Syrian church that worshipped in Aramaic, the language of Jesus. And I, I, I don't have a note on this in front of me, just in recollecting recollect from my reading, but there's something like 60 uh, liturgies that have survived from the Syrian church. And every one of them has what is called the places, right? E-P-I-C-L-E-S-I-S. 
places. Poorly written, I'm, I apologize. Um, what is that? Epiclesis simply comes from a Greek word, epikaline, which means to call on, to invite. As a child, I grew up singing a hymn, Into my heart, into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. You know what that is? That's epiclesis. An invitation for God to indwell you, or an invitation for God to be present is epiclesis. And so in all these early liturgies, there is a place at the table where when the bread and the wine are blessed, there is an invitation for the spirit to be present. Uh, I'm not saying it's necessary or required, but I'm just saying, I'm wondering about it. It's like, okay, we don't have to do it that way, but why have for centuries some Christians done that? Before I just dismiss it as crazy or overly mystical, I have to wonder why? Why did it matter that the spirit be present? And by the way, there's really fancy uh, liturgical language one could use, but there are other ways to do this that I find pretty simple and, and non-offensive. Uh, Rowan Williams in his book, Christian, Will uh, uh, Christian Williams, that says in his book, Being Christian, you can say something like this, here we are in the company of Jesus, and then pray, Father, send the Spirit so that as we share the bread and the cup, may the life of Jesus fill all of us. Amen. Would that blow your church up <laughs> uh, or, or disturb people if you simply said, Father, send the Spirit so that we may fully realize your presence as we take of the bread and the cup? The main point here, though, is the Eucharist in the New Testament and in the early church is profoundly Trinitarian. If you've got Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God being addressed, you've got it. It's Trinitarian. Because for whatever reason, churches of Christ kind of ignored Trinitarianism, uh, we've lost his sense of the very fact that something's missing here when we don't acknowledge the Trinity. And I, I would encourage you to uh, open that can of worms. It's, it's worth uh, struggling over. We have a few minutes for a question, maybe. We're we'll going to do some questions now. So if we got some yow bucks coming or whatabouts. Yes, sir. Yes, I have a question. And I need everyone help. Everyone to help me out on this one. So what's the difference between, because we're talking about the Lord's table, so what's the difference between ritual and tradition? Because you keep um, making the statement, in the old country, in the old time, we do the tradition. Mm -hmm. The way I understand it in the, old, in the New Testament, it is a covenant. Mm -hmm. Yes. Are so you, what's the difference now between ritual mm -hmm. and tradition? Yeah, I'm not sure I know the difference. Uh, I'll let Leonard take a crack at it, and then I'll correct Leonard. <laughs> tradition really is just, a, in its simplest form, is a matter of uh, handing on the faith. All of us want to hand on the faith to those we love, to our children, our grandchildren. And... Um, that's what tradition is. It's, what is. it's both the process of handing on and what is handed on. And so immediately, the Christian movement became a tradition. Because um, 
in fact, you have several instructions in the New Testament where the apostle says, pass this on to faithful men who can pass it on to others. That's traditioning. And uh, it's, not a, it's not a bad thing. It's just a necessary thing, it seems to me. We're, we're all doing it um, by the nature of who we are and what we care about most of all. And, um, and, and rituals, it seems to me, are, as, as uh, Daryl said, uh, regular, uh, sort of agreed upon practices that a Christian community practices together at the command, they, they have, at the command of, of Jesus and the apostles, to be sure, but there, there's room for some tastes there and the style of those liturgies. Um, there's not prescribed for us in the New Testament a set liturgy. Here, here's exactly what every aspect of your worship should look like. Um, here are the songs you should sing. You know, um, and uh, very early on, we have examples in the second century of Christian worship. The Christian, that is, call it, we'll call it the liturgy. Uh, Everett Ferguson, in his book, Early Christians Speak, has um, laid out um, a, a pattern here that was common in the second and third centuries. Uh, I think there were, were there eight of them. Yeah, which we're going to look at. We're gonna, we, when we we'll come back from our break, we're going to actually well, hand out to you some of the models and some of the elements that were typical of, uh, of the Lord's Supper in the early church. So these, these were liturgical patterns, you might say, and became liturgical traditions because they were passed on to, to others in the next generation. Uh, and so those are just terms, it seems to me, that describe what Christians do and how they pass it on. English words can be really tricky, like in, maybe in any language. And so when you use the word ritual or tradition, I just wonder what thought bubble forms above your head when I say those words. Do you hear something really positive and wonderful, or do you think of something that's dull and boring and so yesterday, you know? Uh, but in fact, you can have good traditions and bad traditions. You all have traditions in your family, and there's strong evidence that families that cohere have strong family traditions and customs, how they do Christmas, how they do Thanksgiving, how they do birthdays. And to say, well, that's just traditional, and make it pejorative or negative doesn't make sense at all to me. The same thing is true of ritual and rite. I love in the, in the great choice chant that I sang growing up, you know, by Christ redeemed, by Christ restored, then there's this wonderful phrase, that one bright chain of loving right, R-I-T-E. R-I-T-E is R-I-T-U-A-L, also, right? And so if you have a practice that has formed your community, for a generation or many generations, that's a bright chain of love. It's not a negative thing. So, but we have to dust things off and make sure they are meaningful and they don't become mindless or, or pointless. But one of the dumbest things I grew up with was the idea that if something is repeated, it's therefore bad. You know, the idea that that's a vain repetition. I heard many sermons about vain repetitions. The trouble is, it's a question of whether it's vain or not. The Bible is full of repetition. Go back and read the Psalms. So repetition is not bad. It's actually essential and necessary. A, a human community cannot survive 
without form and practice and agreed upon practices. Let me give an example, Daryl, of um, you and I talked about earlier um, about this. In my church growing up, a little church of Christ in Central Florida, 125 members maybe when I was a kid, um, very vivid memories of our, of our tradition there, our practices. We had a, the communion table, the, the bare wooden table with the engraving across the front about doing this in remembrance. Uh, but then there was the stack of the, uh, the, the communion, trays. communion trays. I mean, the bread and the wine, those, those two stacks with a little cross on the lid on top. <laughs> but over when you came in, there was a white, big white tablecloth over it, like an umbrella. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, that stands out in my mind when I was a boy all those years. And the men walked down the aisle, marched down the aisle, you know, and spread out behind the table. And the one who was presiding would carefully take the, um, what do you call it, tablecloth off, fold it, and then they would begin with the prayers and, and the passing. And when it was over, he would walk back down the aisle and pick up that tablecloth, unfold it, and drape it back over the table. Um, and we sang about every other Sunday, it seemed like to me, we sang that, that song that Daryl mentioned, by Christ redeemed and Christ restored, we keep his memory adored. Uh, boy, that, that was a powerful ritual with visual elements. It wasn't just in the mind. It was things we did that captured the mind and the eye of this little boy and the other kids in the church. Uh, it was very visceral. On that point, we're back to this problem of excarnation because in the early church, there's this strong sense that worship and communion are not only what you do from the neck up. Worship is not just mental operations, as though we were just brains floating in space or brains stuck on stick figures that walk us around with the idea that the only reason we have a body is that we have a way to transport our brains. <laughs> uh, that's a very modernist notion, excarnation, worship without the body. Early Christian worship was deeply embodied. Early forms of worship where you worshiped with your hands, for example. You often used what was called the Oran's position where you lift holy hands in prayer. And you could, and one of, there's a hymnal that's very early uh, where one of the hymns is why we extend our hands as though in the form of the cross. So the very extension of the hands in worship is to enact the cross metaphorically with one's own body. And so worship was deeply embodied. Now we've moved towards excarnation, which for many people is just simply have the best possible thoughts in your head and we can be done. Fortunately, Churches of Christ never went that way 100%, and one of the reasons is because hymns saved us. You can't sing without your body, and you can't sing well without your whole body. And thank God we didn't lose that sense, because in many cases, I would argue, the pr most profound liturgy of Churches of Christ is, its, are, is the hymn, are the hymns. The hymnody of Churches of Christ are really at the core of what it means to worship in Churches of Christ, even more than the sermon. Amen. The reason why I ask the difference between ritual and tradition, because in other churches in the old times, they practice only one cup that you can drink mm -hmm. and that bread, right? And this um, 
cold or disease comes up. So they eliminate that. Mm -hmm. So now in our present time, COVID-19 came up. Mm -hmm. So they don't do the ritual or as you mentioned, the valuable passing mm -hmm. or practices uh, mm -hmm. doing the Lord's table. COVID-19 kind of eliminate that. So now what we have is the cup, the silk cup with the juice and the, the, the yes, the wafer. So now that tradition is in somewhat eliminated. What it goes is just that packet of uh, juice and the, and the, the wafer. And that's the reason why I ask. Also, in a way, it, it kind of bothered me because someone asked, I asked the question, is it important, the location? Because we, we are discussing the Lord's table and it's it engraved there. It's like, do this in remembrance of me. And I asked, is it, impo is it important or why is it important, the location of that, uh, the Lord's table? Because most of the time it is in the front mm -hmm. and the, uh, uh, as this gentleman mentioned it, there is a covering a white covering on top of it in the old times and these elders or deacon come in the front and pass the lord table yeah our but Romans, now we need a break not, here so i i take your uh, point very seriously we, we need a whole lesson on hermeneutics here and how to interpret because you, if you want to try to be really literal about that we need to think well it was instituted in an upper room we can't do Lord's Supper folks if we don't do it in an upper room because we've got to be biblical right oh and by the way the inscription on the table uh, shouldn't be in English it should be in Aramaic most likely or maybe Greek if we want to be liberal uh, you know because we've got to replicate the first century precisely and exactly in all respects no we have to do some working through how to apply the core idea of the Lord's Supper to our day and our time so then we have to work through, do we use Welch's, which didn't exist until the 19th century? Or do we go back to wine, as it was really done in the New Testament? You see, there are many, many questions if we want to start become, becoming what I would call precisionists. You know, everything has to look exactly like we are first century uh, Jews. No. Uh, but how you apply that in our day and our time, that's for probably another lesson, yeah. maybe in your small group when you work in the second half. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to take a, let's make it a five-minute break here if you need to go to the bathroom or get some water. When you come back, we're going to have uh, um, four handouts for you, and we'll spend a little bit of time talking through uh, two or three of those handouts. Uh-oh, no, yeah. Yeah. We're getting behind schedule. We're, yeah, we are. We'll be very brief about it. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to set this up with some further orientation, and um You'll be able to follow along on the handouts, and then we'll set you loose to have conversation and some um, some work together uh, to whatever degree you would you would wish. And so, on that point, uh, we were supposed to get your signups here, and I would say if you will sign it with your email address, if we don't have a sheet for you, if we run out, uh, then we can send you uh, the copies of these. So it's another reason to, to sign in. So my apologies for not starting that around, uh, and then with that will be very helpful. Let's, let's be back in about four or five minutes, please. <clears throat> Uh, this may be asking too much of you uh, to actually pose a, a part of a service, uh, a liturgy, if you will, uh, as you will. 
uh, if that's too much, uh, a couple of uh, alternate suggestions is to look at one of the segments of a communion service that has been done historically through the centuries and pick one part of it and, and reflect on that one piece and maybe come up with scriptures or hymns or maybe you compose a prayer that would fit that one segment or one category rather than try to do all of them in the, in the allotted time. I, I do uh, want to suggest... Uh, that if you look at the page called Some Elements of Liturgy. They don't all have it yet. You don't Here's have that. Uh, I'll have a version up here for you all to look at, and when we, when we break into activity, maybe you can come up and look at some of these with, with us. Basically, I've taken, uh, first of all, Leonard has taken uh, a lesson from Everett Ferguson, uh, Early Christian Speech, showing how that in their early Christian communities, as, er as early as the second and third centuries, there were like 10 different elements. And um, opening with a confession of sin in the, in the Latin Mass, you have the Kyrie, Eleison, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Uh, the idea is that you don't go to the table of the Lord without having confessed. Guess what? We're sinners. And uh, it leads to Thanksgiving because the good news is we can be forgiven when we ask for forgiveness. Uh, and the idea of the passing of the peace, some of you have visited a, an Episcopal church or a Catholic church where there is a moment where you greet another person. The idea of that actually is the acknowledgement that because we are forgiven, we are in fellowship with each other. So it's about the horizontal relationship of fellowship. So it's not just saying, hi, how are you? But it's really acknowledging you as a, a forgiven brother or sister in Christ. That's the real point of the exchange of the peace. Uh, the Eucharistic prayer, uh, uh, there are other elements, uh, I've already, which we've talked about, anamnesis, epiclesis, uh, the omnus dei, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, the receiving of the bread and the cup, and the praise to God for gifts. Uh, a second list is one I came up with that is a little different but has many of the same elements. Uh, one I've added here is an invitation to the table. All things ready, come to the feast. Mm -hmm. Where there's actually words of welcome to the congregation. And in some churches, they're very strict about this. Only truly baptized believers uh, of your own uh, particular branch of the, the, the people of God is welcome at the table. Others are saying all who want to know Jesus are welcome. Uh, there are different, uh, there's a different language of welcome uh, appropriate to your community. One thing I would say is it's striking to me that a, that a Bible-based church that takes Scripture so seriously in many churches, and I don't mean to be judgmental, I'm trying to be just descriptive here, in many of them there's no reading of Scripture or very little reading of Scripture. And almost never reading or only occasionally reading the language of the institution of the Lord's Supper. So they're going to the table, but not reading the language of the institution. And I just think that's worth reflecting on. Is it perhaps important to quote Paul directly from 1 Corinthians? I have received from the Lord what I pass on to you on the night in which he was betrayed. Would it be good for the congregation to hear those words? Not just referenced, you know, in passing, but to hear scripture. How much scripture is actually heard 
in the typical church service in your in your in your own church. We have an interesting inventory to do. Do you hear just a verse or two that's the setting up for the sermon, or do you hear the word and so forth? I would also say, getting into my can of worms, um, I think it's really good to let Jesus' word stand uncorrected or improved upon. That means that when he says, this is my body, broken for you, or this is my blood of the covenant, I recommend that you not edit it and say, which represents, that's not in the text, or which symbolizes, that's not in the text. Now, you may think that and you may believe that in your heart of hearts, and that's good. But isn't it perhaps audacious to improve on the words of Jesus? And if he says, this is my blood, why not just let it stand? And maybe that's jarring. I don't know. <laughs> Go back and read John 6, which I believe is very Eucharistic. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, I think all... Contemporary commentators would say John 6 is about the Lord's Supper. Uh, so, a little, a little preaching here, sorry. Uh, so a couple of other things I'm going to say as you go to work, and that is um, not only consider from the neck up what you say or what you hear, but if, if worship is truly embodied, it involves the whole person. As you work through these elements, consider... What are the physical manifestations of faith expression as you move through these segments of the service? Is it only what we say? Is it only what we hear? Or do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Uh, there may be other elements. And given the tradition of singing in Churches of Christ, do consider the hymns that really convey these segments. Because I think if you're talking about bringing some change in the way you do the communion service that's not controversial or upsetting or alienating, my own view is hymnody is your best bet. <laughs> it's really hard to argue against a good hymn. So maybe rather than talking about epiclesis, you sing it, <laughs> you know, and so forth. So th th that's my bit of advice. Uh, Leonard, yeah. what else? I was just gonna, um talk about these sample liturgies at just a moment before we turn you loose uh, with the, uh, the worksheets there. Um, take a look, for example, at the sample. There's three sample liturgies. Um, and if you don't, we didn't have quite enough copies. If you don't have, uh, look at the one that has my name on it. <clears throat> uh, and if you don't have one in your hand, maybe you can uh, look on someone near you. Um, these are just, this is just a, how I, I worked one of these, uh, given these elements, uh, and the other two examples the same. But look at this one. Um, it, it has the element here of preparation. In this case, the passing of the peace of Christ. I, I used, I yeah, sure, yeah, that's fine, that's fine, go ahead. Um, and then uh, an invitation to the Lord's table. Brothers and sisters, it is appropriate that we should begin by remembering the meaning of this holy meal. It is a remembrance of Christ's self-offering for the healing of the world. It is a communion with the risen Christ and with his body, the church, a sharing in the bread of life and an offering of bread to the world in anticipation of the day when all who are hungry can eat and be filled. Now, this is the Lord's table we gather around. All who are baptized and who seek the way of Christ 
are invited to partake. Uh, Christ is our host. Come to him and satisfy your hunger. Um, so the, 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 one of the debate, debated questions uh, in communion services and different traditions or, non, or, or tribes is um, how open is the table? Uh, in this case, it, it, it's saying here, all who are baptized and who seek the way of Christ, uh, some might not even want to say that, uh, to not bar seekers even. That's a question one has to wrestle with, it seems to me, a theological question. Um, you know, the, the, the Campbells in their, their beginnings in, back in Ireland were um, reacting against a closed table where you had to pass certain, jump over certain uh, levels of, um, of, of bars, as it were, to get a token to be able to take the Lord's Supper. And uh, they were reacting. And you see in the early Campbell movement and Stone movements uh, an open table inviting every, anyone who wants to follow Jesus to come and partake. So that, that's a question you have to wrestle with, it seems to me, in any in invitation to the table. Um, and then uh, I say here, following that, um, there could be a, an opening prayer. I give an example of an open, opening prayer that is a, a pre-communion prayer, you might say. And notice there is an example of an epiclesis uh, as part of this prayer, that third paragraph there. Send now your spirit upon us so that the bread we break and the cup we share might be communion the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Send now your spirit upon us so that we and all who bear his name might live lives conformed to Christ. Hear us for his sake. Here's an example of a contemporary uh, epiclesis or invoking the Holy Spirit, which I think is a, a, a significant element uh, of a, a fuller practice uh, of, the, of the Lord's Supper. And then I suggest here that one could, uh, instead of that, maybe do a brief talk, you know, one or two minutes, but very, very brief, not some rambling narrative, but very carefully crafted reflection upon the meaning, or the theological meaning uh, of this meal. And then uh, I'm recommending, and we're, we're doing this, I think, in all three of these examples, that you use the actual words of institution in the, in the New Testament. Whether you do... Uh, the, 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 uh, the, cup, the bread and the cup all at the same time or separated, that in either case you use the word, some words from one of these passages of institution. And then uh, some churches like to do separate prayers, one for the bread and one for the cup. So here's two examples of uh, prayer for the bread and prayer for the cup. Um, and then this, this example is recommending a... Um, a post-communion element. Um, sometimes it's a post-communion prayer. Uh, in this case, it's a post-communion hymn of praise, thanksgiving and praise, a doxology, and then um, a, a blessing, uh, the, the well-known blessing, the Trini Trinitarian blessing from 2 Corinthians 13. Barry, you want to talk about yours? Yeah, just a couple of points. Uh, the the one uh, that begins with confession and thanksgiving for forgiveness. Uh, these are words, again, I borrowed uh, from Rowan Williams and adapted them. We receive communion today not because we're doing well, but because we're doing badly. Not because we have arrived, but because we're still on the way. Not because we're right, 
because we are confused and wrong. It seems to me this is uh, a statement of fact, but it's also, I think, uh, a wonderful uh, opportunity to put us in the right frame of mind uh, to uh, go to the table. Uh, confession before communion, I think, is really important. And again, it, this doesn't have to be high church liturgy at all. What I did here is I took a prayer right out of uh, Psalm 51, but I used Eugene Peterson's The Message. And it seems to me it would be very easy for the church to pray this together. Uh, generous in love, God give grace, huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Uh, what about the church actually going to God and confessing together? together? And not just a kind of formulate, God forgive us for many sins, amen. But to be really intentional about confession. And one other uh, worm in this can, if, if I offend you, and I come to you, and I apologize, I repent, because I hurt you in some way. And after I said that to you, you just walked away in silence. Would you feel that the transaction was complete? Would you feel that something is missing if the person in reply did not say, I forgive you, it's okay? What I'm saying is that at the table, I think it's not only important to confess one's sins to God, but it's occasionally really good to hear that we have received forgiveness. That's called absolution, by the way. Now, we don't need a priest to absolve us, but Scripture is eminently clear that if we confess our sins, as you can read in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what occurs to me is that I grew up in a church where we confessed fairly often, mostly routine language, but I never heard absolution. I never heard anyone say, God forgives you. You have confessed and you're, clean, you're cleansed. And I think that's why many Christians I know felt like they were always needing to be re-baptized, or they needed to do something heroic to get clean, because they were never hearing absolution. But absolution is the other half of confession. <clears throat> And it, and, and it seems to me there's lots of scripture that does it for us, so we don't have to go borrow the Book of Common Prayer, although I think you ought to own one and learn from it. Uh, but there are so many different ways to hear absolution. And so to me, that's a part of, uh, of a really good, complete service. Confessing, receiving absolution. Yes? Yeah, I just, <clears throat> I'm going to see 1 Corinthians 11, and just some of it is. Paul's talking to the congregation there, saying, hey, you guys got a lot of problems. And then he starts talking about the Lord's Supper. Hey, this is a, the issue here. You guys aren't um, looking at the body. You're looking at yourself. What, and I think a lot of it is not this little personal thing I have sinned, but what have we brought to the body or what have you not brought to the body or what are you doing to the body that's wrong um, can you are, are you coming to the body to lift it up or are you coming to the body to project your politics project your uh, uh, whatever it is yeah and, and i don't know if that's uh, part of this or not yeah it's absolutely yeah. discerning the body you want to say something quickly yeah, we, and we let we 
covered, we, we kind of skipped over some things yeah, in the first I'm hour. Sorry, I fell asleep for that first half. No, <laughs> we actually uh, skipped over. But one, one of our basic seven theological themes that we would want to highlight uh, from the New Testament is what we'd call discerning the body. Um, so, um, 1 Corinthians 11, 29, Paul admonishes the church there to discern the Lord's body mm -hmm. in, this, in this meal. And, uh, of course, discerning the body here means a, there's a double entendre there. Um, it means, of course, uh, Christ's body, his, his crucified and resurrected body uh, that these, uh, the bread and the wine represent. Uh, but there's also um, Christ's body, the church, meant to be discerned here. That is, the, the congregation that's gathered and, and having the meal. And um, um, as we enter into communion with Christ and discern his body, we also uh, share communion with one another and discern the health uh, and the needs of this body. And um, that's why I, I believe that this discerning the body, um, well, let me just read what I have here. The Lord's Supper is not, a pri not primarily a devotional exercise for private, isolated individuals, but rather a time for experiencing the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in concrete ways. Uh, it's, it's part of our training, you might say, to submit to one another, as Scripture says, uh, to practice reconciliation with one another. Uh, and to receive one another in our differences, uh, in our irritations, and all the things that make up the messiness of, of a body of believers. Um, this ought to be a feast of reconciliation, it seems to me. And uh, it ought to be a, a place where brothers and sisters can actually be reconciled who are estranged. They can be actually reconciled through this around the table. Uh, and I think there's, there's that very strong horizontal sense of discerning the body that is a part of it, as you suggest. One of the hymns I mentioned earlier, hymn writer, is this Brian Wren. And if you have the one that I did called A Liturgy of the Supper with my name on it, and I do have two or three extra copies if you didn't get one, uh, th that one hymn does what Leonard is describing so well. I come with joy to meet my Lord. I come with Christians far and near to find, as all are fed, the new community of love in Christ's communion bread. I find the new community of love in the bread. And then the next verse says, Christ breaks bread and bids us share each proud division ends. The love that makes us, the love that made us, created us. The love that made us makes us one as strangers now are friends. It's a beautiful picture of coming together, of deep communion, participation, and sharing. There is, as Paul says, one bread. There can only be one body because there's one bread. By the way, I think there's symbolism in having a loaf and not just having tiny little uh, discs up there. Uh, it's interesting because of our excarnation, we think, well, the important thing is how we think. And then we think architecture or structure or physical things don't matter so much. But maybe having a table really does matter. Just phys physically seeing it there and seeing the chalice and seeing the loaf and then reading the language about the one bread. Why would that be so radical? 
it sounds kind of like Corinthians to me, you know. So are we about ready to break? Yeah, almost. No? I just want to add no, to this whole this point again here that uh, this, this discerning the body dimension, that uh, just a sentence I had in my notes here, uh, Jesus' welcome at his table has the power to take bickering, estranged, or hateful siblings and turn them into the very body of Christ. Uh, that, to me, is an, another important dimension of what happens around the table. Leonard, something that we do, not every Sunday, but occasionally, is that we'll have tables set up around the and people are invited to get up and to go to the table but to greet one another beforehand, there are prayers, private prayer places around so that if someone wants to grab somebody and say, I need to help you to pray with me, or we've got this problem, let's talk about it before we go to the temple. And so the active physical involvement, but also discerning the body, yeah. In a more in a more realistic fashion yeah. than just, boy, I've got a problem with you, I've got to think about it, and God forgive me and let's go. To me, that's, that's a wonderful example of how the physical body can be used. There's something different about actually getting up and moving to the table and not just passively passing a tray. And I've, I know as an elder once, uh, being at the table and knowing the people who came to the table and knowing their lives, their life stories, and their struggles, and then meeting them at the table was just deeply moving, um, very different from just row upon row. I'm not saying that that's bad, but there's a way to embody it more fully, and you've given us a great example. Let me mention here, some of you have read this over the years and maybe practiced it some, the, the book by John Mark Hicks that came out maybe 15 or 20 years ago called uh, Come, to the, table. Come to the Table. And he's, uh, it's a book-length biblical theological argument for this kind of practice based upon the covenant meals of the Old Testament and the importance of uh, tables and meals in the New Testament. Um, and he recommends some specific ways a church might do that, at least occasionally. Um, and he's a strong, strong believer in this kind of active fellowship around the table. So we're going to ask you to do the impossible, and that is in 20 minutes, write a complete liturgy that will work in your church, and then share it with us, uh, at least share some ideas that come out of your reflection or conversation, and feel free to work solo or find a partner and share some ideas, and if you simply want to discuss the ideas or, or whatever, uh, or go back and read First Corinthians 11, whatever. Uh, what would be so? Uh, is anyone here willing to share something they wrote or thought about or shared with right. on yeah, doing Don't be shy. Yes. Oh, for the first part of the preparation, um, I kind of went with the confession aspect. Thought about that and thought about First John one nine. You know about if we confess, He's faithful to forgive us and purify us. And then maybe even having a time of, of silent reflection and prayer where we confess and trust in Him to um, you know forgive and purify before going to communion. Okay, great. Can you, Can you repeat that? Yeah, basically he said he took the uh, the theme about preparation for uh, the table and emphasizing focusing focusing on confession. And using First uh, John one nine about God is faithful and just and forgiving us and making that 
uh, a period of uh, at the beginning, but also to follow up with time to, for uh, reflection. For silent reflection and prayers. Silent reflection and prayers. And accept his forgiveness and purification. Okay. Thank you. I, I just wanted to uh, witness this, something you said about something there, there's something about having the table there. Uh, in the fellowship I'm with now, everybody comes up to the table and they partake in pairs. Yes. And as they partake, I'll say, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And I think that's symbolic furniture uh, of the pulpit, the word that's preached, and his meal, the table. Uh, I just think there's strong, and I think as people come to his table, uh, I just, I, I have a different perspective than what how, how I was raised to do communion. Yeah. I just, yeah. I did it by the book you're saying. Right. I, I, it's enriched my <laughs> worship. We need a, a session maybe at the next uh, lecture or Harper on <clears throat> architecture and art and how it shapes faith and influences faith. And we have one loaf. Yeah. yeah. You do have one Break loaf. that. Right. We don't partake one loaf, but and, and we pray together. So just yeah. some of the things that just very good. Kind of a testimony what you're saying. Yeah. You show me a picture of your uh, place where your congregation worships. I'm going to tell you, based on what I see in the picture, what you consider most important in the service. It's very interesting that when the Protestant Reformation uh, took hold, the uh, altar or table was removed and in its place took the pulpit. And to this day, in many Protestant churches, the real event, if you get really honest, is the sermon, not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an adjunct or it's one of my friends here reminded me in his church there was a man that had a stopwatch and he could time how quickly they could get through the Lord's Supper so that they could get to the sermon. And that really happened. So where, what does the table say? What is the structure and architecture, the very shape of how your community worships? What is it saying about what's important in our church? Yes, coming. Uh, yeah, I was, that was actually where I was sort of thinking. Um, I didn't get all the way through, but when I was doing the beginning parts of this, like the preparation of confession and thanksgiving and so forth, I was actually thinking, I've seen it done a few times where the order that I'm used to has been flipped and the sermon has come before the supper. And I wonder if there, could, we could make a really strong case for why don't we put the sermon first and shorten it and have an extended invitation confession period that would then lead us into the supper so that the supper would have a more of a like climactic anchoring to our services as a whole rather than doing it the other way. If you look at Luke 24 and consider that it's a Eucharistic service, what happens in Luke 24 at the end of the story of Emmaus? When does the preaching or teaching occur? first. The preaching and the teaching is actually preparation for going to the table. And so it's word and sacrament. I think our reversal of that says something worth critiquing and wondering about. I don't know how difficult or how problematic it would be to move the sermon to the front and make the communion more important. When I was a kid, I had a memory of people coming to church who were getting ready to go on a trip or had other things to do that day. And they came and they took communion and then left. I've seen all these heads. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's a positive side of that. What that betrayed was 
something important is going on here that may be even more important than a sermon. Maybe, maybe I'm missing, misreading it. Or we can do communion quicker than we can do a sermon. <laughs> get credit. But the truth is, it was, it was taken seriously, even then, yeah. That way you get credit for having you, know, you get credit for communion yeah. that you yes. don't get for a sermon. Yeah. Surely it goes back to that mystical connection, right? If you really believe you're communing with Jesus during that point, well, I think we'll all nod our heads and say that should be the central point. But if you don't think you're meeting Jesus during that point, then, well, the preacher, he's the next one, right? Who's more important to be the yeah. future of Jesus? <laughs> you're raising a question for me, and that is, I'm wondering out of your own experience, how many of you grew up with some sense of the divine presence at the communion table? Even if it wasn't emphasized, even if the preacher didn't say it, you, you somehow never believe it anyway. Yes? That's a several hands. I think you've, you've made a good point about it, that I think our hymns have maybe filled in some of the gaps where our preaching does not emphasize that. Because I think our hymns have done a better job than sometimes our preaching has of reminding us that you know, we're coming to the table with Jesus, even if we might not be able to uh, verbalize that in our sermons or didn't hear it verbalized. I think there was still kind of a back of the mind of like, yeah, this is the most important thing we do. It might not look like it, and our practices might not reflect that, but we at least hold that even more than not holding yeah, I think you're right. Well, yeah. at least it is we didn't have any Church of Christ hymns. <laughs> we didn't sing Church of Christ hymns. Those are not, those are not Church of Christ hymns. Uh -huh. They kept us so close to the idea. Yeah, that's a great thing. Yeah, so if you would all go home in your churches and reintroduce Troy's chant by Christ <laughs> Green, and then you send me a note, you'll just make my <laughs> if you, if Do any of you sing Troy's chant anymore? Who's sung it within the last 12 months? By Christ redeemed, by Christ restored. Yeah. You one. have. Yeah, we, one. There's one over here. Wait, wait, wait. yeah. Um, you know, it's it's simple. It's easy to sing. Uh, and it's hauntingly beautiful. And the words. The drops of his dread agony, which were the original words, they got changed in great songs to his fearful unknown agony. In his fearful unknown agony, his lifeblood shed for us. We see, present tense, in that Bread. In that cup, we see Christ. So, is it okay to actually sing during um, the Lord's Supper? I'm glad you asked. Perfect segue. You remember what I said earlier? You can't appreciate the Lord's Supper if you don't remember Jewish practice in the Passover. You can't do the Jewish Passover without lots of singing. It's rooted in singing. And in the Bible, what does it say? When they finished the Lord's Supper, they went out and sang a hymn. Hymns form the Passover in large part. It's inconceivable that Jesus did the Passover without singing. And by the way, the reason that's a trick question is, in the ancient church, there was not a sharp distinction between recitation, singing, and reading. Readings in Jewish, think of the cantor in a synagogue. Are they reading the Torah? Or are they singing the Torah? Or are they chanting the Torah? Yes. And this was true of the ancient church. And so when uh, plain song chant came along into the church, that wasn't some kind of Catholic in innovation. It was a continuation of Jewish practice, of singing sacred texts. And so when we ask questions like, shall we read the scripture or sing, the answer is, of course, because they're these merge together in the ancient church. When you read the Psalms, you're singing the Psalms. When you sing Psalm 23, you're reading scripture, right? And
and so to me, uh, this is a great point of, that, that can work in the Church of Christ tradition. It's making singing a big part of the Eucharist service. Someone else want to make a comment, share an observation? I remember speaking to this earlier about the, the business of the, the King of Covering. Um, I grew up with that tradition where I was. Uh, it was only a year later that I understood why we had that to begin with. It had to do with rural churches. You didn't have the money, right? And there wasn't the, the invention yet of the air conditioning. And so that was to keep the flies off the communion. But it became something, it became theology of worshiping a dead Christ. And so we're uncovering his dead body and his dead blood. And it was only later that that became a thing of the past in most cases, but more conservative churches kept it because it was considered a funeral uh, service instead of a living Christ service. So I think the, the idea of acknowledging Christ's presence as a living presence is really important because even though that's part of our past, it lingers in our thinking. We don't talk about that as, as, a, as a living presence in our body. That's very nice. Yes, coming. I was just going to suggest that they could go back further. That the white, the white linen uh, that the communion ought to often set up on the table uh, probably goes back to the shroud with the image of our Lord, and that His flesh and His blood on the shroud, symbolic of the communion itself. So you see, in a lot of churches, the white, especially in the uh, the high churches. That this goes back centuries. Oh yes, to the, to the burial cloth of Jesus and the elements being put on that with the image. Yeah. Yeah. In the Anglican tradition, there was a place for a white cloth yeah, on the table. Uh, a friend of mine, maybe some of you know Frank Belize. He's uh, up in Amarillo, and he and I were corresponding, and he wrote me about an idea I've not heard of. It. He called it spreading the Lord's table. History of an idiom. Have you heard the term of spreading the Lord's table? And he cites Alexander Campbell, Isaac Arif, and David Lipscomb, who all use the, the language of spreading the Lord's table. Uh, let me read this uh, from Campbell. Every week at least, the table of the Lord should have been spread for Christian assemblies, and the promises declared by which, in partaking of it, we might be spiritually fed. And then Isaac Arif has this interesting comment from 1861. Uh, Typically, uh, you spread the table in the name of the Lord for the Lord's people and allow all to come who will, each on his own responsibility. Not close communion for Isaac Eric, in that quote at least, is you spread the table for all who would come to the table. And then, uh, the last one's from David Lipscomb, uh, the Lord's table is a board, by the way, board originally meant table, that's why we have phrases like room and board. A boarding house is where you serve food on a table. And so board has that specific table connotation. A board spread with the food our Father has prepared for sustaining and developing the spiritual life of his children. Just a phrase I didn't grow up with, but I found it interesting that we spread the table. But if it's a feast, why not? <laughs> yeah, doesn't that tie with the old idea of when the people come to your house, you put on a spread for them? That's the same phrase, isn't it? Yeah. Fellowship. Put a big spread, maybe. Leonard, you want to weigh in here? No, in my case, I told the story about my childhood and seeing that covering over the table. I didn't have that sense. I got the sense as a little boy watching this for years um, of just the sacredness 
it was something sacred and holy, and they had a, a sort of a solemn ritual that emphasized that. That's what I took away. Interesting conversation a couple of weeks back with a young, young theologian who um, he was very intrigued that we use this phrase in our fellowship, separate and apart. <laughs> and he said, you know, it seems to make sense to me that that would be the perfect time to give when we are reflecting on what was sacrificially given for us. Yeah. When your heart is tender, yeah. you see yeah. the importance. So not suggesting we integrate mm -hmm. that into supper, but I just yeah. thought that was fascinating. That our, our younger our younger believers are thinking about this too. So that was very encouraging. I appreciate your mentioning that, and that allows me to open another worm that I, I have on the I want to open the worm that there is an element of sacrifice at the Lord's table. And because we've been running away from the Catholic notion of sacrifice, even to the language that we're actively re-performing the death of Christ on the cross, that became very offensive in the Protestant world. What happened, though, I think is in, a, in, a, in our escape from that idea, We've gone away from any notion of sacrifice. And I would argue this, that all meals necessarily entail sacrifice. There's no such thing of a meal that does not involve the idea of sacrifice. I mean an ordinary meal. If you have a hamburger, an animal is sacrificed. And even if you have vegetables, I think of all the people who worked and sweated. My father was a farmer and a rancher. I'm telling you, every loaf of bread entails sacrifice on the part of somebody. Lots of work and sweat and bother went into the making of a loaf of bread. It may have been the meal your wife or your husband fixed for you, but there's sweat in the kitchen. Food delivery service involves sacrifice. And we give in return. And so I agree with that idea. This idea that somehow or another giving my money and my resources back to God is uh, sort of painting the table and minimizing it. Not at all. It's about God is offering and we're returning. We give thee but thine own. We give thee whatever we have is God gave to us and now we're returning some of it back to him. So I'm not, I, I, I have a good minister friend who used to talk about the transubstantiation of the almighty dollar. <laughs> the danger of putting the, the, the money on the table, because he said if you put the money on the table, then all the rules of the church apply about where you can spend it and what you can't spend it on. But if you never put it on the table, this is the old church model, then there was a lot of freedom about how you spend the church's money. <laughs> this is Bob Henry, by the way, who taught me this phrase about the, the transubstantiation of the almighty dollar. <laughs> I, I, I guess I've always uh, understood that phrase to mean uh, something a little different. You know, in, in our heritage, we've got how many acts of worship? Uh, so we got separate and part. Right. Giving right. and worship. Right. I hear that. Except when I pray a psalm and sing it. I'm doing three at once. So do I get credit to add two extras? Yes. Could I read these lyrics? Please do. Yeah. Here's um, a song from uh, a modern gospel artist named Jonathan Trailer, T-R-A-Y-L-O-R, and the song's just called "The Tray the Table." And I I found this a few months ago. It was it was really powerful for me. So I'll just read these lyrics. There is a table filled with the best food. Can you hear the Father calling? There's a seat just for you. 
And at this table, all is forgiven. Trade in your chains of bondage for crowns of freedom. And the chorus is, all are welcome at the table. There is a place just for you. No condemnation at the table. There's a place just for you. This is the table of new beginnings. These cups are full of love, and it's never ending. And at this table, there are no orphans, just a loving father and his sons and daughters. All are welcome at the table. There's a place just for you. No condemnation at the table. There's a place just for you. And the bridge. <clears throat> Leave your shame at the door. You won't need it anymore. Hold your head up high. This is the start of your new life. Leave your chains at the door. They can't hold you anymore. Hold your head up high. This is the start of your new life. And then, of course, again, all are welcome at the table. There's a place just for you. No condemnation at the table. There's a place just for you. That's beautiful. On this point, uh, the handout that uh, we ran out of called Hymns for the Lord's Supper, at the bottom, I this is some, just some contemporary hymns, some uh, Leonard introduced me to, some I, I found online. There are so many wonderful uh, hymn resources out there beyond our hymnals and also beyond what's on contemporary Christian radio. Uh, and I would really encourage you to find out what's being done in the Iona community in Scotland uh, by uh, John Bell. Uh, look at some of the Teze hymns like uh, Eat This Bread, Drink This Cup. Very simple, easy to sing a cappella. Uh, I hope in your church you aren't caught in the trap of only classic hymns or only contemporary Christian hymns. There are so many other good hymns out there that don't fit into those two, uh, two bins. Let me say uh, just two quick things in our time. is just up. Um, if you put your um, uh, email address on that sign-up sheet that went around, we can send that hymn sheet to you. And we also, Darren has also prepared a seven-page sort of resource document of scriptures and hymns and prayers uh, that you could use as a resource. And we could send that if you, if you would like. Uh, and let me say that I, I hope what you take away from this uh, workshop today is a sense of a maybe a bit larger framework structure in which to think about planning for um, the Lord's Supper services in your church. I don't know if you have a role there or not, or could influence that in some way. But if you do, if you can, I, I hope this can expand that just a bit and bless you and your church um, by a maybe a bit somewhat richer uh, experience. Um, we appreciate you being here today and uh, participating, jumping into the conversation, the workshop, and uh, we've enjoyed being with you.